Hello, and welcome to the EPC's third episode of our podcast series, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kostermans, and I'm the press officer here at the European Policy Center. After our post-summit briefing on the December Council, and with the end of another turbulent year fast approaching, I sat down with Yanis Emnodidis, our Director of Studies, and Junior Policy Analyst Paul Butcher to talk briefly about the outcome of the summit, but also to look ahead at what's in store for Europe in 2019, focusing on the biggest political event of next year, the European Parliament elections. So, Janis, the end of the year is uh, always a good moment to take stock and process the events of the past year. Uh, We just ended the post-summer briefing here at the EPC. Um, After this December summit, where does the EU stand and uh, what's different from where we started on the 1st of January 2018? Well, I think if you think back um, the end of 2017, also the beginning of 2018, there was a bit of uh, a sense of optimism in terms of the ability of the EU to potentially further reform itself. If you remember, that was after the French elections, uh, where a very pro-European became president. It was after the elections in Germany, so you had two new uh, executives in place with a strong um, political capital. Um, There was a hope that that might um, trigger a new compromise between Berlin and Paris, which might then also lead to compromises at European level on different issues. Um, not only on one or the other, but having kind of a package deal and then progressing with respect to some of the things which have been stalled for a while. Uh, EMU reforms in 2012 effectively hasn't been really moving with respect to the solidarity dimensions of migration. We have been stuck since 2015, 2016. So there was this idea maybe there could be progress in 2018. And unfortunately, that window of opportunity, which I think really opened, um, has already closed. Uh, probably it already closed in June when we saw that the level of ambition to reform the EU was not as strong. Also in Berlin and Paris, the agreement between them was not as strong and they were not even pushing at European level to get the agreement they found in the context of the Mesebeck uh, Declaration. Um, so at the end of 2018, I think we lost an opportunity to reform the European Union in a more fundamental way. Um, but if you ask myself, if you ask me, of what the situation is at the end of 2018 compared to where this institutional cycle started in 2014, I think you can save two very different stories, um, uh, two different narratives. You can give a very positive account of where we are today, but you can also give a very negative account, and I think the reality is always lies somewhere in between, and the question Mm -hmm. is um, which of these trends in terms of positive or negative developments will prevail in future, and I think that's the question which has to be debated and will also be um, something which has to be decided in the next political institutional cycle starting after the 2019 European Parliament elections. Yeah, and one of the topics that was pushed a bit aside uh, at the Council was migration. Um, Again, the member states failed to come up with a comprehensive agreement to move forward. And I also saw a video in which uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban uh, said, uh, he posted it on Facebook, and he said that during the Council summit, he uh, was attacked, or Hungary was attacked, by uh, multiple countries over migration uh, in an effort to, to marginalize Central European countries and get more money and rights for migrants. And he then said, and I'm, I'm quoting, 
I am describing it as a last attempt because there will be European elections soon and everything will be over, which sounds rather ominous. Uh, but so uh, it's, it's clear that Prime Minister Orban uh, seems to believe, and, and many observers with him, that the elections will result in a resounding win for Eurosceptic and, and radical populist parties and the defeat of more traditional parties like the EPP and especially the, the Social Democrats. Uh, do you agree with this prediction? Well, I think, first of all, we need to be very careful uh, months ahead of an election. Mm -hmm. I think we we got our lesson in different cases where even, you know, the last weeks ahead of an election were the decisive ones. Mm -hmm. So one needs to be cautious. Um, but yes, I think that there will be a good number of uh, anti-forces, anti-Euro, anti-migration, anti-EU, who will do rather well in um, the elections in a number of countries, uh, better than probably they did in 2014. Um, on the other hand, in the European Parliament, if you want to analyze of who is more critical of the EU, you will see that there is also a good number of UK uh, members of European Parliament who then will no longer be in the European Parliament after 2019. So some of the gains which these anti-forces, these critical EU forces will have might be countered by mm -hmm. the fact that you have some of the uh, less Europhile or more Eurosceptic voices of the UK leaving. Um, so I would not be among those who say that um, the European Parliament will be dominated by these anti-forces, but they will have a stronger weight in individual countries, and that has then an effect also on European policy making, which one needs to take into account. But with respect to um, the quote of uh, Viktor Orban, I think what we see from this quote is that he is trying to use migration mm -hmm. as an element in order to um, do well in the next European Parliament elections yeah. in Hungary itself. So it is an issue where they see, not other Viktor Orban, but also anti, also other anti-migration forces throughout Europe, see as the issue from which they can do well. And, they can, and he's trying to present itself as being a case where it's us versus them. It's those who are mm -hmm. pro-migration against those who are more cautious, who are saying enough is enough, which he obviously feels he's the one leading that camp. Yeah. Um, so he wants that issue to be really on the agenda. He wants it on the agenda because that helps him to polarize, to create this us versus them within his country, vis-a-vis -vis opposition forces, but also vis-a-vis -vis others in Europe. So from the perspective of Viktor Orban or of also of Matteo Salvini, uh, having migration on the top of the list and polarizing um, the debate is something which is in their interest. This is why I think as a strategy, also from the liberal camp who's using this liberal versus liberal argument, and it might not be the smartest of strategies, but I think in terms of the analysis, it's probably going to be an issue which will be strong in the European Parliament elections and the Orbans and the like will be trying to use it. Yeah. And, and do you see maybe also an alternative scenario, one in which um, there might even be a sort of strong united opposition against these Eurosceptic forces or not? Well, there is an attempt on the, let's call it the liberal, pro-European, mm -hmm. pluralist, uh, cosmopolitan side of the divide um, to use the opportunity to send the message through the European Parliament elections. Um, I have my doubts because this confrontation liberal or liberal, I think that in the end it will profit more the illiberals mm -hmm. uh, with the argument of we need to defend ourselves against those who want open societies who are saying yes to migration they're simplifying and realities are more complex, but I think it plays more into their hands than it does into the hands 
of those who are pro-European and liberal in terms of being able to increase their support among the electorate. Mm. One is uh, we see that many of those who are pro-European often don't go to European Parliament election. We've seen that in the past. And yes, there's this argument from the pro-European forces that this time is different, so you really need to go and vote. It's about the future of Europe. It's about the future of, of, of you and your kids. I'm not sure that that argument will fly in the end. Mm -hmm. Because we've seen in the past that European elections are often about, at the end of the day, national issues. Um, and I think that, that these issues often make those who are critical of the EU go and vote, and also those who want to show the yellow and red card to those in power. So I'm not sure that this liberal versus illiberal is something from which the liberals will profit in the end. So I'm going to play a little bit of a, a devil's advocate here and uh, pose the question of, is there really a big fundamental problem about these forces gaining more power in Europe? I'm talking about these more anti-Europe or Eurosceptic or illiberal forces. Don't we have to respect the, the democratic process at play here? Maybe this is just a, a way of voters to signal that, you know, they are they are done with the what they may perceive as middle of the road uh, politics. Well, first of all, I think, uh, and you asked in the beginning to also look a big back. Mm -hmm. um, if you compare today's debates with where we were 10 or 15 years ago, I think we have debates where there's much more criticism vis-a-vis -vis the European Union, the European project. And I think that that's good because that is a sign of maturity that you're mm -hmm. having these kind of debates and that there are honest debates which also reflect some debates which are happening among so-called ordinary people uh, and that you have um, these kind of discussions which I think at the end are not only signs of maturity but there are also signs that we need to have more debate about European affairs than we've had in the past. There is no longer what political scientists were calling a permissive consensus. There is more debate about issues which have a European relevance. But having said that, um, those who often then attract the voters to vote for them have an agenda and this agenda is often challenging liberal democracy. It's not challenging democracy because they also want to be voted and they are not saying let's get rid of elections, but it's challenging that model of democracy which is liberal democracy. So their gains is something which is undermining something which I think is a value which we don't cherish maybe enough to have liberal democracies. And this is where it then becomes a dangerous path and a dangerous trend which is a long-term trend. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not only something which is confined to Europe, it is also mm -hmm. something where we see uh, at other places, for example, across the Atlantic, in the north and in the south, across the Atlantic. Um, so this is something which I think is worrisome. Um, but populism, which so many people are talking about, for me is a phenomenon. It's a mm -hmm. phenomenon of things which go deeper. Yeah. Um, it's a phenomenon which relates to a lot of insecurities which people feel not only economic, also identity-related insecurities. Um, so I think that the liberal forces need to fight not against populism, but they need to fight against the reasons which lead to populism, and one, by the way, being the polarization of our societies. Yeah. Uh, and that's something which I think one needs to concentrate much more on. Uh, because uh, in, a, in a recent conversation that we had, you, you, you told me that what worries you at night or what keeps you up at night is, is this growing polarization in Europe. But as you said, uh, that you know, we also see polarization in the US, in the UK, in uh, South America. Um, 
why why are you awake at night? Why is this something that you are quite worried about? Because I think that that's, and that goes beyond Europe. It's mm -hmm. not it's not related predominantly to European integration. It mm -hmm. relates to how our societies function, how our political systems function. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are two elements which make me being worried. One is the polarization, the increasing polarization in our societies. And we see in the cases where you have an extreme split within societies, like in the UK, to what that can lead to. Yeah. It can often lead to impasse, it can lead to, comp to, to confrontations, even within families, who, where people don't any longer talk about certain subjects because they are so polarized in their, in their opinions. Um, and the second element, which I, and that's more a European issue, is the fragmentation between member states, where you see an increasing distrust between member states, where you see an increasing distrust between national capitals in, and Brussels, the European institutions. So polarization and fragmentation is something which I think has increased mm -hmm. and is something which I fear because of the consequences that it has in general for our societies. And Europe might be um, an easy prey and maybe potentially if things turn really sour, go south, might be the first victim. I'm not saying that it will happen, but it is the European Union is more under pressure also because it's not as consolidated as member states. Um, but the fear of polarization and fragmentation is something which um, goes much beyond the European construction. Mm. Well, and some people think, and you also made a reference uh, to that in your post-summit analysis, um, but that's that disinformation plays a considerable role in this ongoing polarization. And the idea has especially fixed itself in the public debate since the Brexit referendum and since the uh, presidential elections of uh, in the U.S. in 2016. So, Paul, I'm going to turn to you now because you are working on a paper on this particular subject that will be published at the EPC early next year. Um, do you think that that is a fair assessment, that uh, disinformation of fake news is having a big impact on these outcomes? And how much of a problem will, will disinformation be ahead of the European elections, do you, do you think? Well, the first thing to say is that it's very difficult to tell if fake news or disinformation is having an impact on the way that people actually vote. So we can say that a lot of people are, are seeing it or are reading it. We don't really know if they're believing what they're reading and if it's actually leading to um, a change in the way that they vote. But it's certainly, if we take that as a, a hypothesis, it does seem like a possibility. Um, and certainly I think we can expect to see it uh, next year for the European elections. Pretty much it's part of the, uh, the toolkit now. It's mm. part of the, the story of what happens at election times. And maybe to a certain extent we need to um, kind of expect that this is something which we're going to have to deal with again and again. Um, but it's not only spread at election time, of course. Um, when there's a high-stakes election, then there comes the possibility of a kind of coordinated campaign. Mm. Um, and I think that's the, the thing that we really need to be more aware of and uh, to keep in mind around the, the European elections. Um, it's interesting, for example, that at the US midterm elections recently, um, as far as we can tell, there wasn't uh, a very strong, coordinated election interference campaign in the same way as there was in the last US presidential elections. Mm -hmm. um, we should interpret that not as meaning that we're out of the woods and it's no longer an issue, but more that those who are spreading that kind of message, and in particular in a US context especially, we're talking about uh, the Russian state, they are starting to pick their battles, mm -hmm. um, saving their resources for the high-stakes elections. And the European elections next year 
if there's anything that's going to be high stakes election, yeah. this is going to be one. So yes, I think we can expect it to be there again. Um, remember that it's not just uh, state actors that might be doing this, but also actors within Europe, including possibly the candidates themselves. Mm. Um, some EU member states are themselves distributors of disinformation. Um, so there's also um, Steve Bannon's much publicised new foundation, which will be working to um, coordinate the, the far right or, um, or anti-European um, campaigners in this election. And that could very much be using some of these kinds of techniques as well. Mm. I think because this is something which also links to which you were asking earlier, Rebecca, when mm -hmm. you were referring to polarization. Mm -hmm. um, I think disinformation is something which works better if in situations where you have a polarized debate and also situations where people are not any longer debating with each other but they are distanced from each other there are debates in echo chambers where they only talk to those who have the same appreciation of things who share their ideas who share their thoughts who share their values um, and then I think that disinformation can really work to strengthen certain messages and to make people even more aligned to certain positions which already they have an inclination to. Mm -hmm. So you can address those in a much more targeted way and strengthen their coherence, uh, which then n increases even more polarization. So it becomes uh, a negative circle mm -hmm. uh, where one leads to the other um, and then makes things even more difficult. Uh, and let's not forget, we've had disinformation also in the past. Huh? We also used other words for it when we, s we were speaking about propaganda. Yeah. Um, but today, in today's world, and how we are being informed and how social media are playing a role, obviously the means of disinformation work better, are stronger, uh, mm -hmm. but they also work best if you have that kind of a polarized society where certain messages are more received and there's a more readiness to receive them as if you when you have a dialogue where there is really exchanges about different opinions and there's a competition mm -hmm. about opinions and maybe also competition about the interpretations of realities uh, where which doesn't happen today maybe as much as it had done in the past mm -hmm. where also traditional media were playing a different role where you people were informed in different ways yeah. Yeah, absolutely I mean it's never been easier to reach people Mm -hmm. um, because of the internet and social media technology, it's never been e easier to uh, reach people in general, but in particular, it's never been easier to reach people who want to receive a particular message. Mm -hmm. um, and that's uh, a very, very fertile ground for distributing any kind of political campaigning, but maybe especially one that doesn't necessarily need to respect the old rules of uh, reliability, accountability, and so on. Um, there's also an increased uh, uh, ease of production now because uh, you don't need to be a reporter in a tabloid newsroom in order to reach thousands or potentially millions of people. Anyone can do it just out of their bedroom uh, and distribute it in the right kinds of Facebook groups and then mm. it can go viral um, and something which has no accountability and no um, professional input uh, can reach very very widely. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And by the way if you already again making a historical account of things what we've seen also happening in the past is that those forces who often have radical positions and are trying to push their radical positions are 
much smarter and much earlier applying and using modern means of communication. If you go back into the 30s, for example, um, how mass media then, radio, uh, was being used by those who were more radical in a much smarter way than the traditional mainstream forces who were lagging behind and it took them a time to catch up to mm. those radical forces who were using uh, the media this, in today's times, the social media, in a much smarter way um, than the others are doing. So we also see that there is something where you see a repetition of things and that is something which one could also be worried about, if seeing and making these, mm. these, uh, these comparisons. Well, it's also, it seems to me, much more difficult to uh, debunk fake news stories and disinformation than it is to to spread them because spreading them is, is quite easily you can do it with with uh, limited cost but in order to hire fact checkers and actually mm. reach the the same amount of people is uh, is incredibly difficult so I mean, just the same amount of people but the same people the same people the who exactly. in the first place and believed it exactly but uh, in the end, policymakers will have to address it. So um, is there anything that EU po policymakers are doing now to, to address this ahead of the elections? Or Yes, so the EU is uh, doing quite a lot just now, and I think they're going down a, a more promising route than some of the member states. Member states tend to be very keen on the idea of regulating, mm -hmm. um, doing things like expen uh, expanding hate speech legislation to cover disinformation. Well, that's kind of difficult because it's a lot more... Uh, is a lot harder to legally define disinformation. Um, and if you get into the position where you're making it illegal to say something that is wrong, then that's a very uh, yeah. difficult situation. What the EU is doing is working more on creating a sustainable ecosystem. So uh, there was a, a code of practice that was produced by the European Commission that has been signed by all of the biggest social media companies and tech companies which uh, c commits them to doing things like working to make sure advertising is more transparent, um, undermining the advertising incentive for uh, spreading disinformation. Um, and then there was an action plan recently which expands on that and increases the budgets that the, the EU has to fight these things. Um, perhaps you could say that it all sounds a bit soft and vague, I won't say nebulous, <laughs> um, but... <laughs> It, it, that's because it is. <laughs> uh, it is a bit difficult to say, like, what do you do concretely to mm -hmm. fight against uh, disinformation? Um, that reflects how difficult it is to make effective policy on this subject, uh, because anything too heavy-handed could very easily cross over the line into censorship, even if you're not actually censoring material, if the effect is that um, the platforms uh, have much more stringent um, moderation than they otherwise would, it's effectively leading to a censorship-like situation. Um, and the difficulty with that isn't just that it potentially infringes um, freedom of expression rules, but also that it contributes to the same kind of messaging um, that is looking for an excuse to say, look, the EU is uh, trying to tell us what to do, mm -hmm. establishing a ministry of truth, that kind of idea. Um, so it could actually end up making the problem worse, yeah. in a sense. Um, the, the code of practice, by the way, is voluntary. Um, the signatories sign up for commitments, but they don't, if they uh, find that they're working against their business interests, for example, they can always withdraw their signature. So that means that it's very important that people know about it and there's a certain amount of public pressure on mm -hmm. platforms to stick with it. If you could offer one piece of advice, um, not only to policymakers, but maybe also to our listeners out there on how to deal with fake news, what would it be? Well, for policymakers, um, 
first of all, I'd say communication is the key. Um, don't underestimate the difference that simply building an alternative narrative would make. Uh, we have to mainstream positive messaging about the EU. Um, make people less willing to be deceived by, by fake news and make them um, think more carefully about what it is they read about the EU. Um, so forget about trying to police Facebook or something like this. This probably isn't the most promising angle. Focus your efforts more on uh, communication efforts. Um, mm -hmm. That applies for member states as well. Um, and also for the public, for ourselves, who are all media consumers. Um, we all have a role to be aware of this. Uh, if you're a social media user, just remember that everything you see has been selected specifically for you. And maybe consider why it is that you're seeing it. Uh, so Facebook and Twitter, for example, now have tools uh, where you can see why it is that you're being targeted with a particular post. Uh, and personally, I found that once you're aware of that, then the whole thing changes. You see everything in a different light. Um, just knowing how it works makes a big difference. Now, most of us, I mean, if you read a newspaper, you probably you realise that it has an editorial line and you're probably aware of what the editorial line is. Just remember that your social media feed is the same. And Janus, before we conclude today's podcast, do you have any uh, advice for, for policymakers out there, for uh, European politicians ahead of the elections, but also uh, after the elections, how to deal with this, this growing polarization or uh, the battle of the, the split camps, as you call it in your post-summon analysis? Well, first of all, I think it's important to have in mind that these are actually key challenges which we're facing. Mm -hmm the polarization of our societies, how that plays into the hands of those who want to push our societies into a certain direction, but also what I said earlier, the fragmentation between member states, increasing distrust, and the feeling that we have so many differences that we can't overcome our differences when it comes, for example, to how we deal with migration or how we deal with the, with the economic and monetary union where we seem to have been witnessing a standstill, which I think has a lot to do with that fragmentation, increased fragmentation and distrust. So first of all, to be aware that the polarization and fragmentation, polarization within society, fragmentation between a member states, also between national societies, is something which is a key challenge. And if that is actually a key challenge, to address of how, what can we do against it. So if you would ask me what the leitmotiv should be for the next EU leadership, not only the next commission, but also the next president of the European Council, the next president of the European Parliament, so the entire leadership configuration, if fragmentation and polarization is such a challenge, I think one word or two words which I think should be or could form the leitmotiv for the future would be reunite Europe. Hmm. Reunited in terms of countering the fragmentation between member states, the distrust, which I think also has to do with packaging deals, with finding compromises which go beyond individual sectors. Um, and if you think that you need to counter polarization, also to address the strategic priorities for the future, how you use the means you have at your disposal, the money in the, in, in the EU budget, to counter the many sources which lead to fragmentation, which leads to polarization. Mm -hmm. um, the this, this insecurities which people feel, the different kinds of insecurities, to address these issues in order to counter polarization. But having said all that, let's be aware that many of these problems, especially the ones related to polarization, are problems which 
cannot be solved at European level. It's the national level. It's also member states which are in crisis, and that has then an effect at the European level. So it's also the national level which have to mainly address them. So don't fall into the expectations capability gaps, i.e. suggesting that the EU can solve many of these problems which then lead to the phenomenon of populism, for example, because we would overburden the European level. So reunite Europe you know, to counter fragmentation and polarization, but be aware of how far you can go in terms of what instruments, means you have at your disposal at European level. So be humble, but try to reunite Europe, which is not very humble, <laughs> but in terms of the messaging of what you can achieve, be realistic, don't over overstate things. Well, that wraps things up for today. Thank you again to Paul and Yanis for joining me this afternoon. From the EPC, we wish you happy holidays and a wonderful and healthy new year. We'll return with this podcast series in 2019. Until then, over and out. Over and out.